if you asked me to use one word to describe the challenge of autonomy, I would pick the word redundancy. I think it's the most important word in autonomy. I would say that the redundancy is incredibly important if what you care about is safety. It doesn't necessarily affect performance. It does in the sensing space because you can get more, more reliable perception, but having a redundant braking system doesn't actually improve the quality of your braking system. It just ensures that when you actually ask for braking, you get it. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy, formerly of Argo AI, whom I never represented on this show, and now management consultant with a big announcement coming next week. Hit me up on LinkedIn if you want to discuss. Wow. Selling yourself in the intro. Amazing. And I am Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor over at TechCrunch, and we have a and I guess I'm super excited to have on our show, Don Burnett, the founder and CEO of Kodiak Robotics, um, self-driving truck company or autonomous uh, truck company. Uh, Don, thanks for joining us. Well, that's really, really excited to be here. I have a very <laughs> big question. I have a very important question for Don. It's the most overriding question of all questions. Don, when you were younger, did you ever play Mech Warrior, the board game or the video game? I did not. I am not familiar with it. I apologize. Well, I will confess that my initial interest in your company back in the day was because I was a Mech Warrior player. And one of the bots in the game, one of the massive fighting bots, was the Kodiak. And you didn't want to mess with that one. And I was so sure that the founders of Kodiak were players that I was inclined to support you, even whether your tech worked or not. I didn't care. That would be a great story. I really, I'm really apologize uh, that that is not the origin story, unfortunately. <laughs> Moving <Yeah>. on. <laughs> would you like to address the rumors that you're yeah. actually secretly working on a giant killer? <laughs> not to, it's a con. It's a, we no have the comment. we have the te- the spy shots. Uh, we've seen you testing around Palo Alto. I mean, it's you, it's hard to miss. That's right. <laughs> it is giant. That's for sure. What well, What is the origin story of how do you come up with the name of Kodiak if it's not related to a game that Alex played as a child? <laughs> no, no. As, as actually more quite recently, but go on. Okay. Well, that's even worse, but go ahead. I wish it was a really exciting story. It's unfortunately a little bit less exciting than, than Alex's. We, we were strapped for time to come up with a name and our, our legal team was pushing us. So we're like, we have to come up with a name by you know, Wednesday afternoon or something to get the documents in on time because we were uh, founding the company. And we really struggled to find a name that had a domain that was available. Right. Dot coms, dot coms are just completely gone. And so we weren't even trying to get something dot com. I was really excited about dot AI that was kind of new at the time. Uh, but it turned out a lot of AIs were even taken. So we went online and searched for cool project names and uh, looked up a couple lists and uh, found Kodiak. Funny enough, it was on a list just below just below Aurora. So I always wondered <laughs> if that was the way that they did it as well. But I, I'm, a, I'm a pilot and there's a plane called Kodiak that I'm, I'm very familiar with. And I was training uh, back in the day at Palo Alto Airport and there was actually a Kodiak plane that was parked on the ramp there. I would pass it every single time I would go flying. And it's a bush plane. It's a, it's a long haul bush plane built for the Alaska backcountry. And I always thought it was super cool. It's like this big, powerful plane. And I thought it just had the right connotation for me 
um, and and trucking. It's you know we're moving goods, moving freight. It kind of the connection sort of met, you know worked, and Kodiak.ai was available. So uh, that's that's really what it was. We found it online. It resonated with me from my pilot background, and then the domain was available. So so we stuck with it. It's so funny. I I used to have friends who would like you know, kind of compulsively collect domain names. And I'd always laugh at them because they would never do anything with them. But honestly, like it's one of those things that in retrospect, like it's really become, especially .coms is so, so scarce. And 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 you're right. Like when you're founding a company, you've got all these things going on. And and a lot of times like that name is the last thing. And there's just that practical consideration of like yeah. the website. There's also a lot that goes into it. You want to find a name that is somewhat unique, somewhat recognizable, somewhat searchable, right? Some, sometimes you get these names that you type them into Google and it's just a, a random verb that you know is in every every sentence on the internet and that's not actually very helpful for you so it sort of uh, it met the balance of all the different constraints just make a mental note we're going to come back to this flying thing because i'd like to know I, I i'm quite sure that among the leadership of autonomous vehicle developers there are far fewer pilots than there should be and i think this is a very important topic to discuss well, All right. address I it love, now. It's my, one of my favorite topics. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, like, how, has, how has your experience as a pilot sort of informed the work that you do? That's a, that's a great question, Alex. How has your experience as a pilot informed the work you do, Don? It's interesting to think about. There are some corollaries that can be drawn from it. I, I really love the procedural aspects of flying. Uh, there's a lot of checklists involved. Um, I like to be able to to get to places that I otherwise couldn't get to very easily through through either driving or sometimes commercial um, flying, so you can get into smaller airports and, and more remote locations. But of course, the autonomy and automation aspect of of airplanes is is very at the forefront, especially these days with glass cockpits and everything is digital and autopilots are getting tremendously powerful. They still don't land or or take off uh, general aviation planes. There are actually some large airliners that that have that capability but that's not that's not within my grasp or anybody um, like me's grasp and so the thing about autonomy in airplanes is that it, it doesn't have to deal with a lot of the similar challenges what makes self-driving vehicles hard is the other actors on the road if the roads were completely empty then autonomous driving would be solved of course the the roads wouldn't be practical because nobody would be on them so that's not actually an interesting thought experiment but we don't have to contend with a lot of traffic in the air and actually, what you spend most of your time on when you're flying is emergency procedures. So in that sense, there's, there is a little bit of similarities in terms of how we think about fallback, uh, what we call fallback minimum risk condition pr procedures on, on our self-driving vehicles in terms of when something goes wrong, can the autonomy system handle it? Because specifically, in flying, they cannot Right, the pilot is there mainly for when things go wrong. I would say about a third of your training as a pilot is specifically just drilling emergency procedures, everything that could possibly go wrong, how to react without thinking, and then being able to execute. Because you only get one shot to to save the plane if you lose your engine or if there's a fire or if something else goes wrong. Obviously, when you have wheels and you're on the ground, it's not necessarily as dire. But you can imagine that in a situation where there are other vehicles around you and somebody's hitting their brakes. If, if you lose one of your systems, it can become a safety critical situation really, really quickly. And so we have to go beyond what they have in aviation and we have to really think about how to handle every fault case and be able to handle it with redundancy and autonomy to safely pull over. So there, there are definitely corollaries that, that I draw and there's definitely some inspiration that I, I think about, but the problems are actually quite, quite different. And what kind of pilot's license do you have? 
I am a single engine private pilot with an IFR rating. If that means anything to you. Oh, it means something to me. <laughs> Are you a pilot? No, I've started taking lessons, but no, I paused. Some well, that's awesome. Ago. All right, we can we can geek out on we'll talk aviation about another time, we'll talk probably about that later. Okay, go on, Ed. Well, one of the really interesting things about about flying, I've been thinking a lot about like driving and the parts of of driving that aren't just the the driving part, and like I think like with 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 flying that's it's really exaggerated where and i think like the the pre-flight checks are like a good example of this right because it's like it's not when you think especially as a someone who, who doesn't fly yourself you don't think of that as being part of flying but like you literally cannot get off the ground unless you go through and again and it's all stuff where it's like you know in a car you can kind of be like i know that's mostly safe like i trust that this is engineered and what and like with an airplane you literally have to like go through, you leave nothing to chance. And like, it's, it's a fundamental part of flying that again, like in our mental model, you know, a flying, it, it doesn't really exist. And I feel like the more I learn about like driving automation tech, it's really similar that like, you know, people are easily fooled by these level two systems because they've got, it's automating the parts of driving that we just most prominently think of when we're driving and we do the most consciously, but there's like all of this stuff from you know, getting your driver's license to getting insured, to keeping a good record, to paying your insurance, to keeping your vehicle registered. All this stuff is fundamentally part of driving. And you can't generate like economic value as a driver unless you're doing all these things that we don't even think about as driving. So there's kind of a, a, an interesting similarity to flying there too, right? Absolutely. That's uh, a very good point. There, there's there's pre, pre-flight checks and inspections that you have to perform. There's annual inspections, there's mechanic inspections, et cetera. But one of the most important aspects of the entire flying process, as you pointed out, is ensuring that everything is working as expected before you leave the ground, right? You want to discover issues before you leave the ground. And I actually think there's some comparisons you can draw to the way that the commercial uh, freight market works, right? Our drivers actually perform pre-flight inspections, as we call them, or pre-drive inspections each and every day with every load that they're carried. This is actually required by law, and there's a set of um, and set of inspections that you have to go through to ensure that your tires and your brakes and your systems and your lights, everything is working as expected, because that's actually when the most critically dangerous situations occur. Of course, there's always tricky traffic uh, and crazy drivers and all these instances that we can point to, but a lot of the mundane stuff like tire blowouts, engine failure, oil pressure, tire pressure, tire temperatures, etc., those can mainly be caught before you actually drive. And this is something that we take very seriously in the autonomous space, recognizing that without a driver, we want to really increase the reliability of our system. And so we are advocating and working with the industry to um, come up with, or not come up with, but we, we have now come up with an enhanced inspection system. Actually, Dan Goff on our team has been leading, leading the charge there, um, working with all the uh, constituent regulators to put in place an enhanced inspection system so that we can say our, our truck is actually maintained to the highest possible standard without letting anything uh, go to chance. And that dramatically increases the chances that we'll have a successful trip and we'll have to deal with the complicated complicated things like engine issues and or tire blowouts or things like that. Of course, they can still happen, but you want to try to minimize the risk of those instances happening. And that's exactly what you try to do when, you, when you're getting into an airplane. I want to bring up the next phase, though, after that inspection, which is when something does happen, the whole issue around redundancy. Some companies... Um, I think most AV companies have 
redundant systems, but some talk about it more than others, um, maybe perhaps because they're more robust. But in terms of redundancy, um, with what you've done over at Kodiak Robotics and with your trucks, talk to me or talk to us about how you're thinking about that. And were you informed from your, um, you know, pilot time or were you more influenced by other industries or, you know, applications happening today in terms of redundancy in the trucks? If you asked me to use one word to describe the challenge of autonomy, I would pick the word redundancy. I think it's the most important word in autonomy. So I'm really glad that you brought it up. In our system, we think about redundancy throughout the entire system. A lot of times, it's easy to talk about the brakes. You want redundant brakes, and we'll get there. But it really starts with the sensing platform. You want to be able to see 360 degrees around your vehicle, but we believe that not only do you need to see 360 degrees around your vehicle, you need to see it with a lot of redundancy. And that is both intermodal and multimodal. So you want to have redundant cameras that can, that can verify and check, check each other. You want to have LiDAR and cameras overlapping so that if you see something in the LiDAR space, you can verify it in the camera space. You want to have radar overlapping, right? So we use camera, LiDAR, and radar in our sensing suite. And we have full coverage across all of the modalities. And so we can cross-verify that if we see something in one of those modalities, we can verify it in another. And that allows you to get very high precision uh, in, your, in your detections. So you have a really good understanding of the world around you. And it also allows you to exploit the inherent advantages and get around the weaknesses in, under certain conditions like fog and, and rain and weather and other, other situations where one particular sensor might be less, less useful. So that's where it starts. And then, of course, you have your compute. We have an embedded compute system that we call the ACE, our actuation control engine. This is an ACLD rated system that we've built. It's our proprietary technology that is responsible for the safety envelope of the vehicle. It's the thing that's monitoring the health of the system. So there's over a thousand diagnostics that it's monitoring 10 times a second, everything from the health of the sensors, the power levels, the data that's moving through the system, the timing, data integrity, but also the platform, engine status, tire temperature, health of the the braking system, everything on the CAN bus is, is being monitored. And if anything goes out of its limits, that system can, can safely pull the truck over to the side of the road. And we have two of them, right? So there's, there's actually, each one is built to the highest possible automotive standard, and we've added a second one to, to kind of double-check itself. And then, of course, on the platform side, at the end of the day, you need to have redundant steering and redundant braking. And those are both systems that we're working on employing. So I would say that the redundancy is incredibly important if what you care about is safety. It doesn't necessarily affect performance. It does in the sensing space because you can get more more reliable perception, but having a redundant braking system doesn't actually improve the quality of your braking system. It just ensures that when you actually ask for braking, you get it. And that's really important when you don't have a driver behind the wheel who can overpower overpower the actual electrical system through a mechanical lever, which we, of course, don't have. And you asked... Are, are there similarities or can you draw a comparison to flying? It's, it's funny because redundancy is a luxury in aviation. The assumption is that you have a pilot to back 
to back up the system. And at the end of the day, the pilot is supposed to be able to fly the plane just by looking outside. And in instrument conditions, IFR conditions, when you're flying through clouds, there are requirements on certain sensors that must be redundant. You must have a backup attitude indicator because turns out, which is really fascinating, I think, that when you're in a cloud, you have no spatial awareness. And very quickly, your, your, your ears and your balance start to lie to you. And so pilots actually train to ignore their feeling, ignore the forces that they're feeling or they think they're feeling in their head and fly by what the attitude indicator says. If it says that your wings are level, your wings are level. If you feel like you're turning, you have to ignore that. So if that sensor fails and you're in the soup, so to speak, as we call it, uh, it's really bad. And in fact, that's actually how a lot of planes go down. And so you have to have redundancy there. But in general aviation for smaller planes, there's typically not that many redundant systems. And as you get larger and larger planes, and that cost a lot more money, you start to get additional redundant systems. And uh, it's definitely a luxury. I've had some sensors fail on me. I've had some systems fail on me in my, in my plane, both when I didn't have a backup and when I do have a backup. And I'll tell you, it's like night and day from the from the stress levels of, of being a pilot. And so you really want to have as much redundancy on your plane as you can, but it comes at an extreme cost. When you say, when you talk about redundancy, um, you mentioned cost and that is, you know, one thing. Um, I'm not suggesting, of course, that you scrap all redundancy to keep costs low. However, it must jack up the price or the cost of one of these vehicles. Can you give us a sense of what that redundancy adds to the cost? Is it double? Um, and have you seen prices come down as because as things have become commoditized, like some of the sensors? Sure. I've never actually thought about it that way. So the sensing componentry is still probably more than 50% of the cost of what we add to the vehicle. The platform redundancy, and by that I'll t- I mean braking systems, steering systems, is probably about 20 or so percent of the cost. And you might double that right? But it's only double 20%. And so in the grand scheme, I don't think it actually adds all that much to, to, to the cost of the system. And in some ways, as we talk about self-driving systems today, it's a little bit hard to even talk about cost because everything is so low volume that everybody's building components by hand and building components by hand is really expensive. And so we, we typically think about the, the long term where you have mass production of these systems and the cost comes, comes down considerably. Kodiak system today is about four times more expensive than we expect it to be in the long run. And we don't, we don't talk publicly about what those, those costs actually are. But in areas where we have redundancy, it's less about the cost today and more about the performance and safety of the system. Mm-hmm. Right? The holy grail is getting to a driverless system that provides value in the market. Right? That's what we want to get to. And the luxury we have in long-haul trucking is that, one, trucks are more expensive than, say, passenger vehicles. So we're not selling these to consumers who are asking to pay an additional $15,000 or so for an autonomous system. We, we get to charge and amortize that cost over the lifetime of the vehicle. And these, these vehicles drive 600-plus thousand miles in their, in their initial lifetime before they're sold on the secondary market. And so it's a lot easy to, easier to absorb those costs in the trucking market than I, and then I think it's, it is in the passenger car market. And also as a service, as opposed to selling directly to the customers. So for those who don't know, tell us what Kodiak does. What's the product? What's the business? Kodiak is a full stack 
self-driving developer focused primarily on long-haul, over-the-road semi-trucks. So we move goods, we move freight, those 53-foot trailers that you see out on the interstate highways, using our technology from locations in or adjacent to the highway to other locations in or adjacent to the highway. So we call that hub-to-hub. So think about it as the 100 or 1,000-mile truckload movement. We automate that process with the goal of removing the driver and adding efficiency and resiliency to the overall supply chain. Um, yeah, so I, I was going to ask you to clarify what ACLD means, but automotive safety integrity level D, um, I, maybe I feel like we, we, there's a lot to talk here, sort of more zoomed out. I don't know if we want to stay on the technical stuff or, or not. I mean, I think essentially, do you, just really quick, uh, what is ACLD? Just so for those who are listening don't, who don't know. Yeah, so you you just uh, you just gave the acronym, and I, and I often have to remember that I can't just like throw the jargon around. I actually had someone visiting Kodiak yesterday that asked that exact question to to one of our hardware engineers. ASIL D basically is the highest level of automotive standard. It basically means that the mean time to failure is somewhere around a hundred million hours of operation. So, in practical terms, a hundred million hours is never fail. Right? You never expect an ASIL D component to actually fail. In, in the real world. And that's the, that's the standard by which we build our safety-critical components to. And then we add a second one on top of that, right? So it's, it's so many more levels of reliable than we ever expect to need. And that's really where we think we want to be, at least initially, as we deploy these systems. Yeah, and it's part of the... the um you know, safety assessment essentially, right? And 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 so for system, and I think this is it's important for people to understand that when you have like a level two system where you do have a human who is always supposed to be there, always ready to take over, you can you can have lower grades of of safety integrity, right? Because that human is part of the system if the system is well designed to keep them in the loop, right? Absolutely. That's right. I would like to talk about these details all day, but Don is here <laughs> to talk about the the, the big question, which is yes. In the current economic climate and given the Luddite mood that is pervasive from people who never had any real opinions to offer when things were hot, Kodiak is still standing. Don, tell us about your business model, your fundraising, and what you see for the future of autonomous trucking. Wow, that's a lot, Alex, but okay, Don. It's a lot, but I want to give Don a chance to shine because this is a really critical moment in the sector and Kodiak is standing and they're on the show. Don. Talk to us. It's a really interesting time in self-driving. And for those who don't know, I've been in this space for about 15 years. So it's a long time. I've, I've, I've been through all the different waves of hype cycles and downturns and new hype cycles. And now we're on the latest downturn. And the entire macro environment is obviously challenging. And it's challenging for companies that are pre-revenue, pre-product like Kodiak and, and other self-driving companies. And so there is a lot of scrutiny. I think the scrutiny is fair. It was always clear, I think... Uh, probably all of you have said at one point that not all AV companies are going to survive. Not all are going to make it. There's going to be con- some consolidation. I think a couple of years ago, we were all talking about consolidation quite a bit. And surprisingly, there hasn't been as much consolidation, I think, as many of us thought. But there are some companies that are starting to struggle. There's a couple of different factors involved. One, we've always believed from the very beginning of the company that capital efficiency was incredibly important in the space. Right? It's a very hard problem to solve. It takes a long time. 
but I, it's all progress is also not necessarily linear. I think that's something that people need to realize is that if you have a thousand person company, you can't do in one day what one person can do in a thousand days, right? That's in a very important, and I say it with an extreme example, right? Imagine you had an organization of a thousand people and you gave them, let's say five days, actually, five days to build a product. I don't think anybody believes you can build a product in five days and ship it with a thousand people. But if I said, you have five people and I'll give you a thousand days, I think there are people who believe it could be done. And so obviously there's some balance, right? It's, it's kind of like the area of a, of a square versus a rectangle. As you make the rectangle really, really thin, the, the area goes to zero, even though the perimeter goes to infinity. And so is it, is it a square? Is it 500 people for 200 days or whatever, you know, whatever that number is? It's not, the output and productivity is not equal. And so I've been at large companies. I, I was at Uber, there was, it was a pretty large company. I was at Google, the Waymo team before it was Waymo. And I've seen it grow from small to big. I've seen the productivity changes over time. I was a co-founder at Auto. We were a small scrappy team. I think, um, say what you want about the history there, but we made a lot of progress in the year that we were building building the truck. And to me, that was an eye-opening experience. And I think the sweet spot is on the smaller team for a slightly longer period of time as opposed to a much longer, larger team for a shorter period of time. I think other companies have fooled themselves into thinking that they can produce a lot more, a lot more quickly, and that speed was of the essence, right? Because it's very expensive, and so you need a lot of funding, and therefore, you have to move very quickly. You have to go to a product right away. But there are a lot of moving pieces to building this technology. It's not just about AI. It's not just about the compute power. It's also about the redundancy. It's about the systems that make up the platform. It's about the compute and what we have access to. That has evolved tremendously. The algorithm, algorithmic understanding of machine learning and AI has evolved in the last six to seven years dramatically. The processes that we have access to, the cloud services, the data labeling, the training systems are night and day from just five years ago, right? And so the pace of the ecosystem continues to accelerate. And each company, if they set themselves up correctly, will stand to benefit from that ecosystem acceleration. And another thing that Kodiak did really strategically was not vertically integrate every component, right? I've been at companies where, well, every other AV company I've ever worked at has had a LiDAR and sensor program, as an example. Everyone wants to build their own LiDAR. Why do they want to build their own LiDAR? Because there aren't LiDARs they can buy, or at least the ones they can buy don't meet the requirements, or at least so they think. But my opinion is, we have market forces for a reason. The idea that any one company can hire a set of people who will build the best possible widget or the best possible sensor or LIDAR in this, in this case is probably statistically very unlikely. And so what's going to happen is only one company can build the best product. Only one company can, can build the best performing LIDAR. And so every other company that builds their LIDAR is going to be subpar. And they're going to be at a disadvantage. And, so, but, and they're going to spend hundreds of millions or more to develop that system and then realize that they're actually in third place because four other companies were building it and theirs is the third best. And that puts them at a huge disadvantage. And so what do they do then? They go try to buy a better one or worse. Like actually, let me further the example and say, four companies try to build a LiDAR for themselves, 
but three companies try to build it for the market. And what if one of the ones in the market win? Now you've dumped hundreds of millions of dollars over many years to develop a LiDAR, and it's not even as good as the one your competitor can buy for you know $1,000 off the shelf. And my bet was that the companies that are having to compete in the, in the market are the ones that are actually going to develop the best product because market forces are going, to, are going to bring them to the top. And they're going to have multiple customers and they're going to have more scale because they're selling to a larger, a larger group of folks than, than the ones who are building it internally. This is just one example, by the way, of vertical integration. You can apply the same logic to simulation systems, to cloud-based infrastructure, to data storage, to machine learning training, to data labeling, to uh, mapping infrastructure, you name it. Most AV companies have built all of this technology in-house, and that requires a lot of people for a lot of time and requires a lot of investment. Of all the examples I've, I've mentioned, Kodiak doesn't build any of them in-house. And so we've been able to buy what we need as we need it for a fair price, which, by the way, is always getting better. The price is always going down over time. And so that, that to me, has been a real strategic advantage that we've had. And look... It's possible that five years ago when we started the company, that wasn't going to work. We didn't know. I didn't have a crystal ball. But all of my experience told me that these large, vertically integrated AV companies that thought they needed to do everything themselves, not to, not to beat the horse, but most AV companies develop their own network switches, as an example, right? <laughs> and, and maybe to the, to the non-expert non amongst us listening, that might seem really crazy. And I can tell you, I think it is crazy, right? There, there are some really good network switch companies out there that know a lot about making network switches. I don't think the AV companies are the ones that need to be building their own network switch. And so it's things like that that I think put a lot of strain on organizations. And in a market where funding becomes tight and money becomes expensive, all of a sudden your burn rate is everything. And it has not, to me, translated to more rapid development, right? For companies that are 10 times larger than Kodiak, they're not making 10 times more progress. That is for sure. Maybe it's two times, maybe it's somewhere between one and two, maybe for certain companies it's less than one, but it's certainly not 10 and they're spending 10 times the capital. So I think that... Being capital efficient is the right play in this market, but I would argue it's been the right play from day one. And that's something that Kodiak has really uh, believed in our DNA. It's always been the way we've operated. And I think that that ultimately is why, if you look at what we've done in 22, from a commercialization perspective, from a technology perspective, we're, we're starting to take the lead in this space or we have taken the lead in this space. So it's interesting <laughs> that... Um you know, five years ago, while right now it seems like not being incredibly vertically integrated seems to be working in your favor on the, certainly on the cash burn side, right? Um, but five years ago, that's a huge risk. Did you think through, even if you're kind of calculated that, all right, all my experience tells me that this is going to happen. To me, the biggest risk is that while the cash burn is certainly certain to be higher in companies that are try to be vertically integrated, that technically they could make inroads that you would not be able to because of the simulation companies available at the time or the LIDAR companies available at the time. I mean, five years ago, LIDAR companies were a lot different than they are today. So how I would like to understand your thinking about it because that seems to be like a, a huge risk five years ago. And maybe even still a little bit of a risk, right? Like you, you laid out a compelling argument, but I want to poke back a little bit. I think the timeline really matters. If you think, you, you mentioned five years ago, which was when Kodiak started. 
I would argue that five years ago, there was already a rich and mature ecosystem built up around AV. The more interesting cases to think about seven years ago, when I was starting auto in 2016, the landscape was way different than it was in 2018. So just in the, fa- in, in the, in the span of two years, we went from basically having nothing, no sensors, no support, no nothing in the machine learning space, hardly any cloud services. When we started auto, we really had to think about building just about everything ourselves. It really wasn't a consideration. There were starting to be some mapping companies that were around back then, but even those were in their infancy and they didn't really provide the market with what I thought what I think we as a, as a company needed. And so at Auto, the mentality really was, yep, same with Google, just like Google was building everything our, themselves, we, we needed to build everything ourselves. And then you fast forward two years, and there's this huge ecosystem. There's starting to be multiple LiDAR companies that are competing, and that, of course, blew up to 30 or so LiDAR companies that, that um, propped into being in the last five years. But you had simulation companies, Applied Intuition, and others who were, were starting out in that space. And... I guess my my sense was if I extrapolated the last two years of my experience in the auto Uber journey, let's call it, if progress continued to accelerate and hype continued to grow around this ecosystem, then the hypothesis was these services are just going to get better and better over time and we can stand to take advantage of them and we can help shape them on somebody else's dime. So as an example... We've been working with Applied Intuition on the simulation platform for the last four and a half years. There's a lot of Kodiak in their product, right? We've given them a lot of feedback. We've helped shape the needs of that product. And we have a great working relationship with that company. And they hire hundreds of people to to develop a product that they can then sell and provide to 20 different OEMs and other manufacturers and other companies that reap the benefits of the work that we helped provide them. But they funded it. And we didn't have to raise that capital. Right, and they have to worry about monetizing it. We get to to use the benefit. So, 2018 was a really interesting time where we came just later than a lot of other companies that are working in this space today. We got to make the decision to not vertically integrate, whereas they didn't get to make the decision. And the the truth of the matter is, it's really hard to change. It's really hard to shut down a major program within a large organization and say, you know what, all this. All this time and effort that we spent building our bespoke simulation platform, we're going to throw it all away and we're going to integrate with some third party. That is not only politically difficult, it's technically difficult. Your system starts to get intertwined within itself and it gets dependent on the types of systems that you've built internally. And so, and that's what we call technical debt, right? That's the term that is technical debt. And a lot of these earlier companies suffer from a lot of technical debt because they started in a time where these services didn't exist. And so we were sort of in the sweet spot where it, there was a glimpse, it was there, and I saw it, and I, I bet that it was going to continue, and arguably it has. I think we're in a really strong position now where there's tons of services that we can, we can utilize to, to build a real AV system, and we're not encumbered by the technical debt and internal ver- uh, vertical integration that, that other cur- companies have. So timing does matter. Um, five years ago was just the beginning. Seven years ago, there was basically nothing. Yeah, I remember someone saying something similar, a former Waymo person about five years ago. Um, actually, less about, I think this uh, what you just outlined is really fascinating. What they explained was just just in the development process alone, if you're going first 
you just you just end up going down all these blind alleys and everyone coming after you gets to avoid those. And so it's fundamentally like, it's like a, you're like the snowplow if you're out front, right? Like you have to do 10 times as much work to go the same distance. And, and it's not to say everyone else is just following in your wake. It's not that simple, but, but there's a lot of intrinsic inefficiencies in just, in just being first. And it seems like maybe to some extent, and correct me if I'm wrong, cause I'm curious if like, if like uh, investors are going in this learning journey uh, of sort of like understanding that how this space is, is evolving as well, um, because it's obviously very relevant to how the, the space is, is going to shape out. But um, right. Because a lot of, a lot of that was like, okay, it's, it's, it's maybe 10 X harder. We're, we're, we're the front of the snowplow and we're, we're really inefficient, but like, the upside is that we're going to develop this solution. It's probably going to be here quicker than, you know, it actually is. And it's going to be kind of more universal than it, than it maybe it actually is. So like how, how have the investors sort of gone along on this, on this journey? Because I think what you, what you lay out here is, is super pragmatic and matches actually what, what some other people have, have said over the years. It's interesting. I would say investors don't necessarily see the light as, as early as some, some other folks. Some do, some do. And I don't want to, Stereotype investors into one. Go one on, stereotype them. <laughs> name name don't names that don't, don't stereotype. Name names. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some investors are very technically savvy. Some some are less savvy. Some are really interested in in learning about the details, and some some are not. I, I would say it has been an evolving experience. Investors are very momentum driven, and so when hype is high and excitement is high and promises are through the roof, a lot of investors like to to pile on and they like to follow each other. So it's a little bit of a positive feedback cycle. And when investors pull back, they all pull back. I mean, this is how the markets work. I'm not, I'm not talking about anything that, that people are not very familiar with, even in the public markets. But now there's a lot more understanding of the story I just gave you from a capital efficiency perspective, from a um, ecosystem perspective. One thing I think is worth noting is that in my experience, investors are still convinced that this technology is going to happen, right? They're not, maybe not as as negative as 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 you all are in terms of of your predictions. It will happen. <laughs> We're not negative. We've been very realistic and quite realistic. Good. That's actually a good way to put it. Realistic. That's right. Um, but investors all believe this is going to happen. So now it's just a matter of who has the right approach to go the distance to get there when the finish line appears. Because the finish line is going to appear. I mean, we have companies now that have released meaningful driverless systems on the road. Look at Cruise, look at Waymo. Uh, Zooks just made an announcement. Neuro has their bots on the road. It's no longer a mystery. We know that developing a safe driverless system is possible. It's now about how do we create the right commercial product that actually provides the value and is usable in a way that sustains these companies to profitability. So I worry less about the technical needs and the redundancy and all that kind of stuff. I, I really want to focus the company now on how do we build the right commercial product. And this is what we've been focusing on in 22. We now have more commercial customers than any other AV company. We have one of the, the, the largest AV commercial-ready network. We, we drive now all across the southern United States. We're well beyond just the borders of, of the state of Texas and driving coast to coast. So that's really where the new fight is. And that's what we're now trying to work with investors to understand. I'm glad you brought that up because I'm interested in the business model that you have seems seem to have uh, narrowed in on, which is this hub system. So just so I understand, in this scenario, you have autonomous, driverless, so no human being in the truck between these two hubs. And then once they get to a hub, 
there are human beings there that then drive it the rest of the way? Or is there a human still like chilling in the cab, relaxing during this whole time and then takes over? The idea is that the truck would not have a driver. For the middle okay. portion of the route between the two hubs, there would be no driver, no human being in the vehicle. That's how we'd reduce the cost and that's how we drive up efficiency because humans are restricted by hours of service. And we would get to these hubs and there would be a human on the ground that would actually swap the trailer onto a manual truck, a manual tractor. And then that manual stock truck would be driven by a human to go the rest of the way. We call that the first and last mile. And the humans would be driving back and forth. It's similar to a drayage model back and forth on the first and last mile, and the autonomous truck would be driving between the hubs on the long haul portion of the road. Mm -hmm. There are other companies that have brought up or have decided to go after something similar to this. There's a few nuanced differences. But to me, the one thing that has always come up, while on the one hand, it employs people closer to their homes, and that's attractive as a job recruitment in terms of human human being truck, truck drivers, but the hub system seems real estate heavy um, and also capitally intensive um, as you scale. So how are you thinking about how that works um, for, for Kodiak? This is why it was so important for us to bring our partner in Pilot, the Pilot company, Pilot and Flying J. They, were, uh, they actually led the investment in our last round. Uh, they sit on our board and they have over 750 service centers throughout the United States that are strategically located. And we're working with them to enable their network to be the backbone of that infrastructure. But also some of our customers have infrastructure that that qualifies. And so that's part of the challenge in 2023 and 2024 is to figure out what locations are strategically located, what locations can be hubs for this model, and how do we convert them at the lowest at the lowest cost? Kodiak is not going to be buying up real estate and infrastructure and building facilities all across the United States. That makes no sense. Some companies have talked about doing that. I think that makes no sense. I think partnering with existing infrastructure players is the way to go, and that's what we've started now. So one of the, uh, as we wind down here, I have to ask about this. Um, uh, one of the innovative ways that you're sort of keeping money coming into the company is by taking on a military contract. I'm really curious just how at a, at a high level, I guess, since we don't have a lot of time, how do you balance sort of working on that contract with, you know, this really ambitious sort of core product that you're developing as well? This is a really exciting opportunity for us. And perhaps it's a, and maybe it's a, a longer conversation for a, a future, uh, Opportunity on on this podcast. I'd love we'll to talk about it. We'll have a military inspired. Yeah, we'll have a military inspired. <laughs> That's all I want to talk about <laughs> the defense the defense episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah so so but we, briefly, why don't you give us the lowdown on that? Yeah, we signed a fifty million dollar contract to provide autonomy services to the U.S. Army on the robotic combat vehicle program. So that's the RCV program, which is one of the smaller initiatives uh, with it. They call it actually the small RCV uh, within the U.S. Army, but. With the way we see it, we we built an autonomy stack that was designed for over the road highway driving, and we've done a, we've created a lot of innovations. One of them was the non use of HD maps. This is, uh, I think, very practical and very useful. And I've talked about this in the past from a trucking perspective, but it also lends itself to unstructured environments. And this is something that the U.S. military is very interested in, as you can imagine. And so it turns out that our system is naturally built to operate in unstructured environments. And we think, we feel like there's a considerable overlap between the commercial product that we have been working on for the last four and a half years and the goals and requirements that the military was looking for. And so this is an opportunity for us to bring revenue forward, um, increase our, our cash flow, um, 
de-risk the timeline of getting to commercial while also building technology uh, for the use of of the military, which can you know keep our men and women out of harm's way. And that and, and saving lives is ultimately why most of us got into this space. And so we think this is a really great opportunity for the company. It's something that we're really proud to be a part of. And it's also um, a really good business opportunity to deploy our commercial technology to another vertical. I'm proud of you too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, with that, we have to um, close, but we should definitely talk about the military applications or defense applications at a later time. Don, thank you so much for joining us today. And Ed and Alex, I guess, thanks for joining as well. Um, but most importantly, thanks to our audience to listening to another episode of The Atomicast.